This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One Make, Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. You think this is funny? Is this a joke to you? Uh, Murray, one small thing. Yeah. When you bring me out, can you introduce me as Joker? Welcome, 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 welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. I am not Buck Sexton. Uh, Mr. Sexton is uh, away. I believe he's still in, in Las Vegas. But uh, my name is Chadwick Moore, and I will be filling in for today's program. Uh, lots to talk about, of course. Uh, you just heard a snippet of the trailer for the Joker movie. Um, just, just called Joker, not the Joker. Uh, making big ripples in the culture war. It's getting a lot of attention. I- I'm fascinated by the reaction to this movie. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in how, uh, it's speaking to people, how people are, are, um, really, really intrigued by the themes in the movie. And we're, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to discuss that. Don't worry. No spoilers, I promise. And, um, we're going to discuss, uh, how, why people I think are so intrigued, um, by Joker. We also have coming up, uh, later in the show, Ambassador Rick Grinnell, our ambassador to Germany, a beloved member of the Trump administration, who will be discussing with us uh, some foreign policy issues. We're going to talk about Syria, the reaction to the withdrawal of troops with Ambassador Grinnell. We're going to discuss his new his new uh, post as a special envoy to Kosovo and Serbia. And we also have later on uh, Spectator contributing editor Daniel McCarthy, who will be on He's going to talk to us about impeachment, uh, what we can expect, why it's happening, how it compares to uh, both Bill Clinton and um, Nixon, who, of course, was not impeached, but nearly was. And uh, he's going to talk to us about Romney Republicanism. Later this hour, we also have Andy No joining us, journalist Andy No, who uh, is a specialist on um, political violence, hate crimes, and the such. But uh, for now, let's talk about this movie. $93.5 million opening weekend. That is a record setter for the month of October for a domestic um, domestic box office opening. Um, it, uh, it's getting a lot of attention in the media. So I went and saw this movie Monday night at a theater near my apartment in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, which is, um, uh, you know, it's, it's liberal, white, hipster um, utopia, that neighborhood. Very expensive. It's nothing but, but nice restaurants and, and low crime and, and inflated rents. And I went in the theater and there were barriers set up in front of the, the screen for the first few rows of the auditorium uh, so that I would only guess no one could jump on stage and commit some horrible act of violence and then i peeked in the second theater that was that was showing the film also and it was the same setup um 
So that's where we're at. Um, I guess we know who to thank for that. Uh, headlines around this movie have read things such as uh, fears of incel mass shooter at Joker opening weekend put cops across the country on high alert as NYPD plans undercover uh, detachments and cinema ban cinemas ban masks and costumes. Another headline, U.S. Army warns against possible mass shootings by incels at Joker screenings. Joker movie sparks legitimate fears over incel terrorism at movie screenings. Uh, Joker movie prompts mass shooting threats at movie theaters. And I could go on. Um, Does it sound like the media is, I don't know, begging for this to happen? Like, does it sound like they are, they sort of would, uh, wouldn't be too upset if, uh, if something really horrible were to happen at one of these, one of these screenings? Um, of course the, uh, it's, it's, uh, the, the angry white man. This is why the media is, is, hates this movie so much. Um, it's the, it's the story according to them. It's not, but it's the story according to them of, of, uh, the Trump voter. It's the story of the, the disenfranchised angry white male who turns violent. And that's who's going to see the movie. And that's who's going to love the movie. And, um, and that's scary. Uh, unfortunately, that's not really what the numbers show. So there, uh, apparently Hollywood does um, exit polling for movies on premiere weekends. And uh, they tracked the audience. I went to see The Joker. And um, whites were underrepresented. And minorities were overrepresented in the audience. Um, it was 62% male. That's not surprising. That actually seems a little low. But I imagine it was um, plenty of people bringing their girlfriends with them. white, 24% Hispanic, 16% black, 14% Asian or other. Um, Warner Brothers released a statement ahead of the film's release uh, saying that, uh, quote, Warner Brothers believes that one of the functions of storytelling is to provoke difficult conversations around complex issues. Make no mistake, neither the fictional character Joker nor the film is an endorsement of real world violence of any kind. It is not the intention of the film the filmmakers or the studio to hold the, this character up as a hero. So that's what they were, they were worried about. Um, when you see the movie and like, as I said, no spoilers here, anything I, I'm about to mention will be, you can gather from the trailers or the first 90 seconds of the film. Um, but uh, the, CNN had a big piece that said uh, Joker validates white male resentment. Um, so, th- so this goes on. Um, what that movie really does is it's not a comic book movie at all, really. Um, it's a character study. And, and it is heavily inspired, as you may have read, by um, Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver from 1976. And I, I don't think it, it must be intentional. Robert De Niro, who, who played in Taxi Driver, also is in this film and features very prominently. It's uh, probably not a coincidence. Um, so it's a character study. And it's terrifying. It's a, it is a terrifying movie. And uh, and it's also, if I might say, I, it, it, I think it's a masterpiece, really. Um, but it's not scary for why I expected it to be um and in fact the the it's not very 
it's not the violence isn't that gratuitous compared to what we're used to. It's actually not an extremely violent film, comparatively speaking. Obviously, there is some violence, but not nearly what I thought. Um, the terrifying part is Gotham City, and it is it is uh, set in the eighties, the early eighties. It is a, a a beautiful recreation of New York in the late seventies and early eighties. They did a fantastic job of that. And it is a Nietzschean hellhole. It is, uh, the social fabric has collapsed. Um, it is uncaring. It's unforgiving. It's dirty. Um, the very first, you know, 10 seconds of the film, uh, you hear just the, in the background, um, the news is on the radio or the television. Uh, and uh, they're saying, talking about a sanitation strike, garbage piling up, uh, rats, uh, interesting, they mention, and I'll say why well, it's interesting later on, um, a, a typhoid outbreak. And um, if you know the Batman origin story, <clears throat> it's the more innocent versions are, you know, Gotham City was this place that was overrun with crime, uh, mostly organized crime, street crime, petty theft, um, you know, street random uh, street violence. Um, it was just a place where law of lawlessness. And Batman comes along and uh, clean, cleans up the crime because, you know, the cops need some help. Um, but that's not the Gotham City of this movie per se. It is not just overrun with crime. It is, it's the collapse of social order and cohesion. And uh, it's civil unrest. It's class, um, class war. And the the, they sneak in so many parallels to what's happening today that it, it, will, it will surprise you. It, it, there is, um, it uses much of the same imagery. Um, and it really, I, don't, I wish I could give away more, but I can't because I really want to talk about this movie. But um, you'll see, you know, the, when, whenever there's a big... Um, mobs of of violent people they have signs that uh, read the same things you will see on signs of uh, when this happens on the news today and uh i think the reason why the left and the media hates it is it is deals with so many issues that we like to talk about outside of the mainstream media um fatherlessness uh it, it uh, uh prescription drugs drug addiction um mental illness Guns aren't really the enemy in the movie. Um, it's it's more the chaos and destruction of what the ruling class has wrought on the citizens of Gotham. And it's a mostly it's a godless place. Um, so one reason why that I think speaks so much to people today, particularly if you live in one of our nation's largest cities, particularly if you live here in New York, because everyone sort of sees that 1970s dystopia creeping back in. You know, it's not here yet, but we see it coming in. We just had a, not too far from where I'm sitting right now, a gruesome murder that is straight out of the 70s, that's straight out of uh, 
a film like Joker of uh, four homeless men being brutally murdered in the street by just some random attacker who had a large blunt object and just one night walked around Chinatown and beat random homeless people to death who were sleeping. Uh, No motive, no reason, just chaos. And we see, you know, New York has the, no one wants to talk about this, especially the Democrats and the leaders, but New York has currently the highest homeless population ever. And it has the highest homeless population in the country. Uh, It's also the best concealed and most expensive homeless problem in the country. Each of New York's roughly 70,000 homeless people, if you look at the budget for the Department of Homeless Services, costs taxpayers around $200,000 a year, each and every single homeless person. That's mainly because uh, the Democrats quietly passed a law that says um, anyone who seeks housing for the night, the city has to provide it. And as the shelter system is overflowing... uh, then that means that the city has to sometimes put them up in hotels, luxury hotels even, Airbnbs, private apartments. Our city is hemorrhaging jobs. Mm, There was a a large uh, multi-billion dollar hedge fund company that just said it's leaving because they said they don't want to do business with New York City anymore. Famously, uh, AOC got Amazon to pull pull out its 30,000 high-paying jobs from Queens. And, you know, we see the same problems in our big progressive cities floating from one to the next, from New York to Los Angeles to San Francisco to Seattle to Chicago. It's always the same problems. And you're seeing this decay. You're seeing this unwinding of the social fabric, this um, begin to begin to reveal itself. And I, and I think people are nervous. I know people in New York are nervous. I know they don't like to talk about it. Uh, and they wonder if that's where we're headed. And while all this is happening here, you know, what does our mayor, Bill de Blasio, prioritize? Aside from <laughs> trying to run for president <laughs> and uh, failing, failing to get above 0% in polling. Uh, well, let's see. He... Loves to focus on language, so he just banned the term illegal immigrants. So if you use the term illegal, or I'm sorry, illegal aliens, illegal aliens. So if you use the term illegal aliens in um, uh, in, in a way that is, is mean, basically, if you use it with malice towards someone, you can be fined $250,000. That just happened this week. And de Blasio also did this with uh, misgendering someone. If you intentionally misgender someone, even if they have uh, made up pronouns and you know their pronouns and you refuse to use them, uh, $250,000 fine. Now, so far this hasn't happened. And as soon as it will, it will go to the Supreme Court, I hope, and uh, be shot down with uh, record speed. Um... But that's where we're at. I was on the subway the other night. Well, this was actually a couple months ago. And the subways have effectively become mobile homeless shelters. You used to never see homeless people in New York, rarely. And there were like six homeless people asleep on the subway. It was late at night. And you step in and um, the 
recordings that greet you say, hello, everyone. Thank you for riding with New York City, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but de Blasio, that's new. De Blasio changed that. It used to say, uh, attention, ladies and gentlemen. But, you know, that, that's uh, not inclusive. So it had to be changed. Um, so anyway, so this is what we're, we are, are dealing with in our cities. And I think that uh, it's one of the reasons why this movie is, is really um, captivating people. And uh, and causing lots of uh, of discussion, um, so uh, it's worth seeing. It's a, it's good. It's it's a good film. My name is Chadwick Moore, and I will be filling in. Uh, so not not only do we see these quality of life issues as our leaders are um, preoccupied with language policing and banning plastic bags, um, but but violence, we are seeing an uptick in violence. Crime is on the rise and we're seeing an uptick in um, political violence, hate crimes, hate crime hoaxes. And um, it all just, it, it's all speaking, it's making people paranoid and and, uh, and people are worried. And I think that's, uh, this movie um, is really holding a mirror up to that. And so... Plenty of hate, uh, plenty of hate crime hoaxes, which we're, we are going to be talking about uh, very soon, um, but also real hate crimes that uh, you're never going to hear about that the media never reports on. You know, basically every hate crime you do hear about in the media is made up. And welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. I am Chadwick Moore, sitting in for Buck Sexton for the program. Uh, we were talking about civil unrest and, and violence. And uh, political violence. Uh, and can we play uh, clip two quickly? I was walking on canal. There was some sort of event. Uh, and uh, I got jumped from wearing this hat. And she started cursing at me. You know, saying, you know, Trump hat, blah, blah, blah. And uh, basically, one kid took my head and bashed it against the scaffolding pole. It all happened within... 10 seconds, I jumped out, crossed the street, and I called the cops, and this is my situation right now. That was a man named John Tehran, who in August was, uh, he, he is uh, uh, a, to be maybe an uh, Asian man, he's not a white guy, and he was, he was walking down the street wearing a MAGA hat, he was beat up by about 15 teenagers, walking down the street in New York City. Uh, the video of that is disturbing. Uh, he's got a welt the size of a grapefruit on his face, and his eye is filled with blood, and uh, it's really it's a really gruesome shot. Uh, we had uh, this week he announced he's suing the gallery where the people were the young people were drinking before they beat him up. Uh, this week also an Antifa was sentenced to 18 months for nearly killing an elderly Jewish man. As he left a conservative event hosted by uh, Mike Cernovich here in New York City, he got 18 months, 18 months for nearly killing someone. No big deal. And um, we see these waves of political violence, especially in big liberal cities such as New York. And if you look at that, uh, you look at that press conference that, that John Tehran, that we just heard that clip from. You see the microphones from the news organizations that are there, and it's CBS 2, ABC 7, Fox 5, 
Pix 11. Those are all local New York stations. That's it. There's no no national stations. Of course, why would the national news report on that? Now, had it been the political affiliations been switched, we'd still be talking about it a month later. But of course, that's how the media works. That's where we're at. Now, we see this string of fake hate crimes. It just happened outside D.C. The young girl claimed she was pinned down by a group of of white boys. She was a, a, a black girl and they cut off one of her dreadlocks and said certain things to her. And we have Jesse Smollett, obviously the most famous. He's turned into a a verb now. Say someone smolleted, someone pulled a smollet. And yet here in New York, there actually is a group being targeted for who they are, besides Trump supporters, uh, that nobody's paying attention to, and that is Jews. Just last weekend, there was a synagogue during Rosh Hashanah that was uh, vandalized. It's a group of t- it's on camera, a group of teenagers threw rocks through the window while worshipers were inside. The state senator, Julia Salazar, for that district, which is actually my district, I live in that district, She's uh she makes AOC look sympathetic. This this was she's this woman is unreal. The le- the New York Times even called her the left's quote post truth candidate. So she tweet so this happened in her district and she tweeted some some young people apparently threw objects into a window on a of a building at Throop and Bartlett Street where neighbors were gathered for Rosh Hashanah prayers. We need to care for each other and protect each other. This isn't acceptable in our district. Neighbors were gathered for Rosh Hashanah prayers. So if you just Google map that that location, there is a synagogue and there's Pepe's fruit and veg stand. I don't think it was Pepe's fruit and veg stand where that happened, but State Senator Salazar couldn't bring herself to say synagogue or the J word, Jewish. This has been a trend in New York. They, it's been reported that anti-Jewish crimes are again up 63% this year in New York City. Nobody talks about it. The national media isn't talking about it. There's several instances on videos of, of visibly Jewish people. Orthodox Jews, visibly Jewish people, being randomly attacked on the streets. And it ain't people wearing MAGA hats, which is exactly why you're not hearing about it. And crime in general is is up in New York. It's, it's up in Chicago. It's up in all of these big cities. Especially where you have these activist prosecutors. Kim Fox was the prosecutor who dropped that, the Jesse Smollett case. And she's sort of the face of this new wave of criminal justice, these new wave of activist prosecutors who've infected city government. And they don't see themselves as law enforcers, but law enforcement reformers. They are focused on race-based policing, uh, race-based leniency in policing, I should say. They come from a place where they believe that the system is inherently racist, evil, and corrupt, and uh, uh, they are going to do what they can to to fix that. Dallas just ele- elected one of these new classes of activist prosecutors. Uh, 
John Cruzo, who openly said, uh, we're not going to prosecute crimes. We're not going to prosecute theft. We're not going to prosecute crimes like driving without a license. Uh, if if you steal something and it's under $700 and we determine that you, you needed it, then we're not going to prosecute you. Come out and play. When the uh, the left, their takeover of, of the progressive insurgency that they that have infected our big cities, this is a part of it. And education is another area where they're coming in this direction. And I have a theory that that they don't really care who the far left, the progressive left doesn't care who wins in 2020. They don't care about the Democrats. I don't think the Democrats running in 2020 are even serious. The ones we've looked at now, they're a joke. I think they know that Trump is a shoe in. Because the progressives have so successfully infiltrated local governments, big city governments, and they're just plucking along with their agenda in that there. They're plucking along where they can win. And the and they know that big city governments are extremely vulnerable to heavily organized activists. Bill de Blasio won re-election in New York with the support of 8.5% of New Yorkers. And the man who just won... Uh, uh, public advocate, Jermaine Williams, which is the seat, the position that de Blasio held before he became mayor. He just won with the support of 1.5% of New Yorkers, and he is far left. So these organized activist progressives are marching away in cities and wreaking havoc. And I don't think they really care what happens in Washington. Uh, On the line, we have Andy No. And, you know, an intrepid journalist, a fearless journalist, uh, unless you are a black masked Antifa communist in Portland, in which case he is the second coming of Heimlich Himmler. Um, Andy, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me on. So great to, to hear your voice. So you have a gr- you had a great article a few months ago in The New York Post documenting about a dozen LGBTQ hate crimes in Portland that were either fake or extremely suspicious. They were all most likely fake. And you uh, you also have another story in the post uh, from this week that is uh, titled, uh, Why We Keep Falling for Hate Crime Hoaxes. So why do we keep falling for hate crime hoaxes? We just had uh, the you know this young woman in uh, D.C., the D.C. area, who faked getting her dreadlocks cut off. These things pop up constantly. Jesse Smollett being the most famous. So why? Why do people believe these? Why, and why do they keep happening? Whenever I get asked this, uh, my question back is, how? why would they not fake? I mean, with the exception of those few who get caught, um, you have basically everything to gain. You know, there's um, attention, sympathy, frequently monetary support as well. Um I think in in the column that I wrote last week for the New York Post about what happened to the 12-year-old girl in the D.C. area, Amari Allen, I was trying to focus on how this phenomenon, which, um, based on the data, tends to concentrate in university-slash-college campuses, now seems to be affecting people who are younger and younger. I think what this points to is that the victimology ideology is getting spread wider and wider to younger um, people. Uh, you see this um, social justice type of worldview 
in the curriculum for K-12 education. And I think as more schools around the United States and Canada adopt these particular worldviews and introduce it to children, you're going to see more young people uh, involved in fake hate crimes. Well, and so clearly Jesse Smollett had everything to gain from faking his his hate crime had it been successful, had he pulled it off. But you believe you see you see it trending younger and that these children, it, it, they're simply being children. They, they see a potential for reward uh, and popularity and attention. And they see th- that they live in a world that encourages that or that 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 uh, t- that tells them this is a way that they can achieve that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's no surprise that children lie. That's what all kids do. I think what's a bit different in these fake hate crimes involving kids is that the adults who should know better, the administrators, the media, uh, they are all too credulous and all too willing to believe these accusations that are, um, on the face of it, actually really kind of outrageous. I mean, let's just break apart um, Amari Allen's accusations. She said that three white boys pinned her to the playground during recess and put, you know, pulled her arms behind her back and put uh, a hand over her mouth. Like, this is very, like, a cinematic type of story. And then was cutting her hair, calling it nappy. I mean, this, you know, this, we know now didn't happen. But at the time, you know, the the focus was on the school because Emmanuel Christian is also where uh, Karen Pence works. So the media was trying to tie it back into criticism of the administration. But this school is a very high security place. Recess is, you know, there's dozens and dozens of other children around. Just the fact that nobody came forward as a witness was like, this was something that I saw nobody raising questions about this. Um, You saw the same type of credulity uh, when Jesse Smollett made his outrageous uh, initial allegations. Um, We're going to continue to see it. And, you know, like what's What's so upsetting to me uh, about these hate crime hoaxes is that what's going to happen is that people become more cynical and skeptical of actual hate crimes. And you're based in New York City. New York has had the spate of real hate crimes, some of them caught on camera against the Jewish community, and it doesn't get any national coverage, much less... um, sometimes not even local coverage. You know, I just need to remind the listeners that it was um, just at the end of August that a Jewish man was really seriously injured by somebody who threw a um, a piece of pavement stone at him and broke his nose. You know, uh, the video of the suspect happens to be a young black man. More recently, just last week, there were five youths who are caught smashing out the window of a synagogue during um, Jewish holiday. And these five youths happen to be black. Um, and then also this month, um, a man named Al-Ashid Allah, he pled guilty to a hate crime assault after he saw two women kissing in Queens. So hate crimes are real. I'm, I'm constantly telling people that, but it's, it seems like if they don't, if these hate crimes can't be politically exploited, 
the media doesn't want to pay attention to them. Right, absolutely. And with the the media, it when they believe it so readily, like with the young girl in with the dreadlocks and with Jesse Smollett, they're be, they are it's childlike of them. Any adult, as soon as I heard about the as soon as I heard about Jesse, the two paragraphs into the story, I said this is fake. When I heard about the girl in Washington outside DC, I was like, yeah, that didn't happen. The media is is. Also, they're they're so childlike in their in their thinking and beliefs. They they this seems like something that could happen to them, and uh, and I'm glad you brought up the 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 actual hate crimes, uh, which we were just we were just discussing. And I wonder, I'm, I'm curious. Do you believe that should we have hate hate crime legislation? Do you think that this is a good thing, or is it just a vehicle to be? Uh, to be exploited and that that further drives people apart. Are you for hate crime legislation or, or does it not really serve a purpose? I think the criticisms against hate crime laws uh, have merit and are valid. And I think it's time for the broader public to st- start having serious conversations about what purpose hate crime laws serve. I mean, if you are committing a criminal act against somebody like bodily bodily injury or destruction on property, I, you know, I wonder what point does it serve for a uh, the crime to be considered more serious if the motivation was based uh, on a bias against a protected class? I think um, there are a number of issues that arise as a result of that. but uh, I, this is an area that I don't, uh, in terms of the area of public policy around the, the legislation, I need to, um, I don't know enough about it to really comment uh, beyond that. Well, and beyond, and beyond the, the spate of Jewish, anti-Jewish crimes we see in New York, the only other hate crime we see are, tends to be against, seems to be political crimes, political affiliations, not a, pl- a protected class, but it tends to be lefties attacking conservatives, Trump supporters, moderates, such as what happened to you in Portland. And we're all um, very grateful that you you seem to be doing much better and that you survived that. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. But I've been so mad this morning and so upset about this news that we are abandoning our Kurdish allies Mm -hmm. in the Middle Uh East. Mm. These are allies of ours that American soldiers are still continuing to fight alongside. All we did was arm them and they fought for America. Mm -hmm. And right now we're just saying we're just going to leave them and abandon them. Mm -hmm. And to everyone in the White House and every Republican who was mad that President Obama pulled out of Iraq, you feckless, unpatriotic cowards. I cannot believe this is where we're at. And I cannot believe this is what what message is this sending to our allies who have fought alongside us and to our American troops who have fought and died for this. And I cannot believe I'm waking up in the morning seeing this kind of news. And I don't care that he ran on pulling troops out. There's a whole different thing. We leave this. This is a great day for ISIS and this is a great day for Assad. And shame on everyone who is supporting this. And I'm sorry this is not the topic, but I just couldn't come out here today and not say this. No, it's it's very important. Why do you think uh, this administration has decided to do it? It is... He ran 
on isolationism, which again, I think is bad crap insane for a whole variety of reasons. Yeah. But I also, I think I, it might be a wag the dog situation. Exactly. I have no that's what idea. I think. Well, it's a distraction from the second whistleblower. That's what I think. You cannot go and say you support our troops that they fought and died for this mission. Yes, but and you then, know he's never been. He's he never. He, his, he can say it all he wants to, but we've watched. Didn't you know when people are supporting the troops. You know when they're looking out for the troops. This guy's not been doing that. <laughs> that was uh megan mccain on the view um she's a big old peacenik you know and as was her father and she's real mad about about president trump pulling 50 troops out of syria um she's very very upset the ladies at the view are very very upset um I don't know if men can't have an opinion on abortion because they don't have that equipment. Maybe women can't have an opinion on war because they can't get drafted. Um, Megan McCain is really, really mad. Uh, lots of people are really, really mad about this. How dare Trump? He, I don't care that he ran on pulling us out of Syria. I don't care. Isolationism. That's bat poop crazy. She said, well, this is what he ran on. Um, the swamp creatures are mad. Lindsey Graham's mad. Nikki Haley's mad. Mitch McConnell, Liz uh, Cheney, Pat Robertson. Um, AOC recently came out as a big fan of war. Um, I don't think anyone is as mad as Cher. Cher, one of Twitter's great gifts. Uh, she's really mad about it. She's been all over Twitter about this and, uh, she speaks in hieroglyphics. So bear with me. Uh, uh, she says, um, few will know less will care about our allies who stood shoulder to shoulder with American flag emoji soldiers and saved their lives. Exclamation point emoji. The Kurds are brave fighters and mass murderer. Aragadon wants them coffin emoji. He four-leaf clover emoji out and is getting help. Um, so thank God we listen to Hollywood. Thank God we listen to Megan McCain. Uh, these people really know what they're talking about. Um, they don't like, uh, they want war. If you remember, the only time I remember the media being nice to Trump, I don't know if you recall this, was April 2017 when there was allegedly a gas attack in Syria and he bombed uh, an army base. Do you, I remember the media being, the media was thrilled. They wanted the explosions. They were nice to him. Great move. Perfect job. And his base was furious. He had just been inaugurated. And they said, no. No, 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 no. This is not what we elected. Uh, let's play another clip. Uh, clip four. This is a Don Lemon. 
So the president has a pretty strange strategy in the face of the impeachment investigation. He's upsetting his own defenders with abrupt decisions like pulling U.S. troops out of northern Syria. And Republicans are up in arms. Let's bring in now James Clapper, the former director of national intelligence. We always love having you on. Thank you, sir. Good to see you. Um, Republican backlash to the president's decision was swift. Okay, the majority leader, Mitch McConnell, uh, says it would only benefit Russia, Iran and the Assad regime. Uh, Senator Graham called Trump's decision short sighted and irresponsible. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley says it leaves U.S. allies to die. Uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney called it an an undeserved gift to uh, the Erdogan regime. Why does this decision have even the president's supporters up in arms? Well, actually, uh, Don, I was uh, quite taken aback by uh, this rare criticism on the part of uh, prominent Republicans. And uh, I think the reason is because taking this action is really uh, egregious. First of all, the whole point of our aligning with the Kurds is to fight was to fight ISIS, which is not uh, to disagree with the president is not defeated. And our small presence there to train and assist the Kurds also served as a bulwark against the Turks taking them on. Well, now we're going to give free reign to the to the Turks who consider all Kurds as terrorists, even though the Kurds are many political stripes. The PKK specifically is regarded by the Turks as a terrorist group, but they just like to uh, consider all all Kurds as terrorists. So this, you know, the president likes to claim that we uh, we're more respected now than ever. Well, on the contrary, all this is going to do is cause people to question our word and not trust us. Mm. And here are the Kurds uh, who did everything we asked them to do. They did all the heavy lifting, took thousands of casualties, uh, you know, basically at our behest. And this is what we're doing to them. So it's it's terrible. And uh, I hope this is a harbinger of things to come in terms of Republicans speaking out. <laughs> that was uh, Don Lemon interviewing uh, James Clapper. Um, two more peaceniks. Everyone seems to forget that Turkey is a NATO member. Right. And uh, President Trump had some interesting uh, things to say. We're going to get all of this, a lot of this cleared up with Ambassador Grinnell, who's going to be joining us shortly. And to, uh, to, to figure out the um, why are they so angry? And do we have to worry about Turkey doing something, um, doing uh, what, slaughtering all the Kurds? Do they even know what they're angry about? Or is this just what we've come to expect Anything Trump does is bad. Were they this mad? Was the left in the media this mad when Trump pulled troops out of Iraq? I'm sorry, not Trump. I'm sorry, when Obama pulled troops out of Iraq. Um, weren't they happy about that? Even though things fell to chaos because it wasn't the right time. So 50 troops are gone. Um, and uh, apparently it's the end of the world. And um, they seem to think that uh, this is really going to have a major impact on us. They think that's going to bring ISIS back. <clears throat> they won't admit that ISIS is defeated. It is defeated. We know that. All right. I would like to welcome my next guest, probably one of the most beloved members of the Trump administration, I, w- I would definitely say. Uh, Ambassador to Germany, Rick Grinnell, thank you for joining us. Chadwick, thanks for having me. All right. So we've just been, we've got a few things to talk about today. But of course, in the news is uh, the, the decision to remove the 50 troops from Syria, and we are seeing 
immense backlash in the swamp and on the left and in the media and and all of these fears over Turkey and a genocide and abandoning our our allies and Kurds. What, as someone who works in diplomacy, what should we make of all of this and of the reaction? Well, first of all, I don't think that anyone should be surprised that President Trump, who promised in the campaign, uh, would really take a hard look at U.S. troops overseas, would try to bring them home, and would focus our foreign policy really on making sure that diplomacy and talk uh, were, were at the forefront, and when we needed to utilize uh, military action or DOD or, or um, try to, uh, you know, switch the portfolio, so to speak, from the State Department to the Department of Defense, that President Trump would view the decision with the sole focus of does it make America safer and uh, would really view our national security through that lens. And so um, I, I think when when you have a NATO ally like Turkey, who makes it very clear that uh, after us uh, telling them to stay out and push back, and we've been pushing back on Turkey for uh, a number of years now to, to uh, limit their engagement in Syria, even though they're on the border of Syria, uh, we've been very successful in holding the Turks back. But it's now come to a point after years of, of really trying to hold the Turks back that they have made it clear that this is on their border and they are moving to act. What Donald Trump has a responsibility and his first priority is to American troops that are there. And so we've made it clear that we uh, will react uh, accordingly to this NATO ally. And I think it's being very responsible. Now, no one should ever confuse uh, Donald Trump's focus to protect American troops overseas uh, and to try to work with a NATO ally for years and to, to uh, push them back as much as he can. But, but when they make a decision to, to move into a neighbor to, uh, to, to affect, I think, the border in, in their view, and uh, we push back on them as much as possible. No one should be confused that that is in any way a, a signal that the U.S. is agreeing with the Turkish policy, the Turkish move. Um, and now we will watch accordingly, as the president has said, and we will uh, react when appropriate. But I think that what people have to understand is, is that this initial reaction from the United States is, is solely to protect American troops. Yeah, and they seem so surprised. Well, I, 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 I suppose this is extremely surprising that a president is following through with a campaign promise and, and something he was elected to, which is get out of the Middle East, a more nationalistic, diplomacy-based foreign policy. And But instead, we're hearing these sob stories about how we're abandoning our Kurdish allies. It, does that even hold any water? Are the are we about to see genocide of the Kurds from the Turkish from the Turkish? Well, uh, we certainly hope not, and I think that we would do everything we can to to stop that. But but uh, I think that's jumping ahead of of what the responsibility is of President Trump when he's faced with a NATO ally 
<clears throat> saying enough is enough. We're, we're going to move into uh, the area and cross the border. And so President Trump has a responsibility to protect American troops. But, but again, I, I think the, the Kurds have been great allies to the Americans. We have for years worked with them, and uh, we're very grateful. We have uh, put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into uh, Syria. We are trying everything we can do to uh, use diplomacy in Syria. Um, but I think that this initial reaction from President Trump is the exact reaction that we need from a president, which is to protect American troops first and watch the situation very closely. But that jumping to conclusions that somehow this is, uh, you know, meaning that the United States is allowing some sort of military action, I think, uh, from the Turks, President Trump has made it perfectly clear that that's not going to happen. Right. And and everyone likes to forget that Turkey is a NATO member. They they are, they seem to leave that out of their of their reports. Um, well, let's switch uh, gears briefly to you. You just received a a, a post, uh, a special post for an envoy, which I'm sorry, an envoy uh, for between Kosovo and Serbia. And I don't think a lot of Americans understand what's going on there today after the, the wars of the late 90s. Could you just give us a sense of what is happening there? What, what, uh, what, what, are you, uh, what are you being sent there to accomplish and what is the current conflict? Well, I think what President Trump thinks is, is that there could be a, an opening here between uh, Kosovo and Serbia and their leaders to begin to really talk through some of the issues that they face. As, as, as you probably know, uh, the, the uh, government of Kosovo has a 100% tariff on uh, Serbian products, and um, that is uh, a policy that the United States has tried for a while to get uh, the leadership in Kosovo to, to stop doing, to reject these tariffs. At the same time, Serbia has been um, uh, pushing other countries to not recognize Kosovo. They do not recognize Kosovo. And so there is an ongoing um, issue between the two that, uh, you know, is not um, the conflicts of the past, but I think is not also uh, good for the region. And what the president asked me to do is to test the two parties and to see if they're willing to uh, come to the table and to begin to talk about um, normalizing the relationship. And there, there are plenty of issues uh, to deal with. What I would like to focus on what, and what I think um, is a real possibility after talking to some of the leaders is that we have to focus on uh, bringing economic uh, development and jobs in, an, in an, uh, a better economy to the region. And I think one of the reasons, uh, one of the barriers to entry for American businesses and for European businesses is that they feel like this conflict between the two countries is causing uh, enough consternation where they, they can't move into um, to the the region. And so that's one of the issues that we want to look at is how can we make some progress and and really change the 
the situation so that American businesses and European businesses uh, feel more confident to come into the region. As, as you know, uh, that would immediately uh, bring about for, for this region uh, economic development, more jobs, and I think more hope. And, and that's where we are right now in trying to build uh, consensus uh, around these issues is let's solve some political issues as much as we can so that uh, economic development can happen. And I think that's what the people want. Now, you've, you've headed up, a, uh, you are heading up an initiative uh, in the Trump administration the, uh, to decriminalize homosexuality to work to decriminalize it in the uh, nearly 70 nations where it's still criminalized. And I believe it's around uh, somewhere between six and eight in which the punishment is death. Uh, the, people hear about this a lot, but I don't sure they, I'm not sure they actually know what's going on and what your approach would be. Can you, can you let us know what, what, what's this about and, and how do you plan to accomplish uh, the, uh, getting homosexuality decriminalized across the globe? Well, certainly it's a, it's, a, it's a big endeavor, and I don't think it's going to happen overnight and it's going to take a long time. There are 71 countries that currently criminalize homosexuality. And so I think what we're trying to do is realize that we're going to need 71 different plans because every country is different. And we have a targeted list of countries that have made um, significant change in movement uh, but have not decriminalized it yet. Um, we, we're making clear to uh, our allies and to um, multilateral organizations like the UN and others that uh, any country that criminalizes homosexuality is really um, denying the UN's own declaration of human rights. And so I personally don't think that you can be a, a member of the UN in good standing if you're not upholding the UN Declaration of Human Rights. And so I, I, what we're trying to do is find friends and allies to really uh, bring this issue up, uh, use it as leverage, uh, asking that we're asking the business community to also recognize that this should be one of the criteria that they use uh, in, in their decision-making process. We're getting incredible feedback. When we focus on the decriminalization, um, people recognize that this is the first step for many countries, and it's a noble step. And so we're getting a lot of support uh, to, to focus on the decriminalization. Um, as, as you said, there are six countries right now that will kill you uh, for being gay, and that, that's got to end. And, and I think uh, rational people everywhere agree that we've got to make progress. We've got... Uh, several uh, really exciting initiatives that I can't go into. Uh, we're trying to um, really work under the radar in many countries, uh, but we have incredible support, um, really great young people who uh, are recognizing what needs to be done and who are working in their countries uh, to, to make that happen. They're working with the courts, they're working with politicians, they're working with civil society and with businesses. And so we're, we're getting them organized, we're giving them tools, uh, and we're connecting all of them. It's very exciting, and I have to say that the more work that we do in it, uh, the more I realize that across the globe we have incredible support for this movement. And uh, I believe that we will uh, begin to make some real progress 
uh, in the not too distant future. Well, Ambassador Grinnell, uh, it sounds like you're doing wonderful work. I'm sure the president wishes he had 20 of you in, in diplomatic posts across the world. Thank you so much for joining us. And we'll be back right Thanks after this. For having me. As we defend American values, we affirm the right of all people to live in dignity. For this reason, my administration is working with other nations to stop criminalizing of homosexuality. And we stand in solidarity with LGBTQ people who live in countries that punish, jail, or execute individuals based upon sexual orientation. That was President Trump speaking at the uh, U.N. General Assembly uh, last month. Uh, and that is the 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 uh, the initiative that that Ambassador Grinnell was just speaking of. And uh, nobody expected Trump to to talk about it. Um, and he did. And there you have it. He. Ambassador Grinnell gets the most hate from the alphabet people. And uh, I'm the same. I get the most hate from the alphabet people. And uh, it's uh, it was sort of like I was watching a video from a Daily Caller reporter. It was at the Young Black Leadership uh, Summit at the White House this week and asking them, what do people call, what kind of names do people call you, asking the attendees, and, and who do you get the most hate from? And, and everyone said, you know, this is young black people, and they said, oh, black people, black people, I get the most hate from them. The alphabet people, when this decriminalization effort was announced, uh, Out Magazine ran a headline that said, decriminalizing homosexuality is a racist tactic. Okay. They can't give Rick the time of day. They despise him. And it's worth talking about the alphabet people because they are uh, the most fearsome. They're the most powerful, I think, of the of the identity groups. And they're most the most effective and the most successful. And they can't be bothered to lift a finger for uh, acknowledging the the atrocities committed against LGBT Q's. I always love how Trump just throws the Q on because it's so awkward and he doesn't know what it means. Nobody knows what it means. Um, and in the meantime, they focus all their energy on trying to paint President Trump as such a bigot. And these controversies pop up everywhere. They're always in the news. The alphabet people are constantly saying these things against President Trump. There was uh, during Pride Month this year. President Trump bans rainbow flags from being uh, flown outside embassies. Well, that's not what happened. Two embassies out of the, what, 200 we have requested to fly rainbow flags. And the administration said, yes, but not on the official flagpole because only the American flag can fly on that flagpole. You can hang the flag anywhere else you'd like, not on that flagpole. But even the mainstream media said they were banning the rainbow flag. Not true. The... Uh, there's an upcoming case in the uh, about a transgender workplace discrimination, and the Department of Justice filed uh, documents with the court to let them know that Title X does not cover uh, sexual orientation or gender identity. That's just the law. There, the Department of Justice is obviously a part of the executive branch. They are forced; with, they are charged with enforcing the law, not making the law. And they're saying this isn't in the law, so we can't defend 
we, you know, we're, we're saying it's not, we're letting you know it's not in the law. And the alphabet people in the media are saying, Trump administration battles against anti-discrimination. Da, da, da. It's, you know, they worry, they always say this guy's a tyrant. And so you want him to start making laws? Isn't that Congress's job? If you want to see anti-LGBTQ, LMNOP discrimination in the workplace, would you like to see that written? Then I think you need to talk to Congress. The DOJ is just telling you what's, what's on the books. They have gone off the, where, uh, off the rails, the alphabet people. This, and there are people I know something about. And, you know, after gay marriage, they had... They sold gay marriage to the American people as love is love, and we just want the same rights as you, and we just want to be free to love who we want to love. It was a very conservative argument. And then once that happened, so many of these groups should have disbanded. They had, okay, most Americans thought, all right, that's over. Fine, whether you liked gay marriage or not, fine, it's over now. You got your rights. And... Where did it go from there? Straight to tyranny. Bake the cake, bigot. It went straight to children, which I never thought I would see in my lifetime. The the transgender children, the drag queen children, the the um and it's completely there was a study recently that that showed that LGBTQ acceptance among millennials was down and of course the media was saying well this is just a product of trump's america what else do you expect uh this is because of hate speech on the internet uh they have such little faith in their fellow man they are so quick to hate and think the worst of everyone around them they don't pause to think that Maybe the reason why, if this poll is correct, that acceptance is down is because of how you're behaving. Because you are behaving despicably. Because you've gone from demanding equal rights to demanding additional rights to enforcing language policing and thought policing and and now getting children involved and telling people how they can and cannot think and telling businesses what they can and cannot do. And uh, maybe that has something to do with it, don't you think, It in the realm of possibility? But of course, that's not what it's about. It's never about that. It's about power. It's about control. And uh, they have been extremely successful. You know, one of the reasons why the gay rights movement was so successful that they'll never, ever admit is uh, because it was led by white men, honestly. And they had and you, and you can make that as a privilege argument. They had if you're you know, you could say, well, they had already had a status in society at that time and that helped push it along. And I was listening to someone the other day say that uh, you see a lot with with, say, companies, but many almost any organization this could apply to where they might start off with really great leadership and uh, they 
become successful, they become powerful, and then there will be people in their ranks who see that. People who have authoritarian personality tendencies or tyrannical traits, and they start to climb up, and they start to assume power, and then the companies, the organizations start going in a, in a different and a bad direction, and then they have to correct themselves. And then those, and hopefully someone better will come along, and, and it's cyclical. That doesn't happen with government, because with government, they are never forced to lose power necessarily, unless someone like Donald Trump comes along to shake things up. But uh, you see that's what happened with the alphabet people, and they're important to pay attention to, because they are a model for how much of the left behaves. And, they, and I think they're the most powerful of the, of the identity groups. And you saw, you see now how it's been taken over by, by big trans, the big trans argument. And uh, just things that have nothing to do, if you go into any gay center in this country, it, there's signs about gun control and illegal immigration. And it's, it's pooling all of these far left issues together that uh, does more harm than good in the eyes of, of how everyday Americans tend to view gay people. Oh, welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. I am Chad McMoore. I'm filling in for Buck Sexton for our program today. And we were just talking about the alphabet people and they're always in the news. They're, they are, uh, every week there's, there's another one of these videos in the news of Drag Queen Story Hour. This is something that's, that's a big part of our, that's become a part of our culture. This year it's really taken off. If we could just play uh, just a qu clip six, please. I just love drag queens in general. It's a great opportunity to combine having a little one and enjoying like the performance of drag. I think it's important that we see different people. That mom and dad look different from other people, and lots of people love you and have stories for you, and we can learn from everybody. <laughs> okay. That's, that's from a PBS NewsHour segment on Drag Queen Storytime, and I was watching... Uh, several local news stories about drag queen story time happening in their local public libraries. And I could not stop laughing because you, the segments are all the same. You know, it opens up with the drag, some drag queen reading a story and you have shots of the audience and these moms holding their children and they talk to the moms about it. It's always the same segment. And every single mother on all these local news stations and in that audience and in that clip they all are the exact same person. I'm not lying. They look the exact same. They're all yoga bodied, late 30s, dirty blonde hair, no makeup. They're like the Stepford Wife edition of the NPR listening, Whole Foods shopping, Park Slope mom. Every single one of them. It's hilarious. And then I looked up the, the woman who started Drag Queen Story Hour. Her name is Michelle T., and she is an author in, uh, lo and behold, San Francisco. And she's one of them. She looks exactly like them. And then I realized what this whole thing was about. And I'm like, oh, my God, these are women who spent their 20s getting drunk in gay bars. And then they got married and had kids and their gay friends won't hang out with them anymore. And they miss them. And so they invite a drag queen into the public library to still be in touch with that world, to still be like they're cool and like queer or whatever. Because for a while, I'm like, gay men don't, this isn't something that gay men would do, like on their own. 
And it turns out I'm right. There are chapters of Drag Queen Story Hour across the the nation. <laughs> and I was looking up the leaders, and they're all these these NPR Stepford moms. Uh, it's really funny. It's really entertaining. I'm sure after the, the show is up, uh, they rush the stage, and they just want to hang out with the drag queen and ask you, oh, my God, I love your hair and your makeup, and you are so fierce. You are, my, oh, you are so fierce. Can we be friends? Uh, I kind of don't have a... Pr- I wouldn't have a problem with Drag Queen Story Hour if it wasn't such a thing. It's it's so typical of the left that they got to take something and they got to make it a thing and they got to ram it down your throat and they're just like, ha ha, that stick it to you bigots. Look what we're doing. When really, like, nobody cares if you weren't trying to make it into such a move, into a thing. I could see the value of, you know, pantomime, a pantomime performer, for example, or... Very few, but some drag queens are actually have jobs in costume design. Uh, many have jobs in hair and makeup. And um, I can see the kids like to play dress up. And I can see the value of of a child. You know, this person walks in with this large glittery outfit on. And they're very stunning to look at. And I could, I could certainly see the value of that. It doesn't have to be a movement. It could be... It, why? And the drag queens are coming in or probably hung over. Uh, they're not talented per se, except for nightlife performing, lip syncing and moving around on the stage. And then you get the instances, which I think the ones you see most. And the reason why I'm talking about this is there was a, one of these clips going viral on on Twitter this week where you see the ones who are doing dancing really provocatively which in front of children, which is disgusting. Uh, we have a little clip here. Uh, clip seven, please. Who likes to do some of those funny little dances from Fortnite? Does anybody know any of the dances from Fortnite? Oh, then you are a credit to your community. <laughs> but most of all, Michael likes to twerk. Now, does anybody in this room know how to twerk? Okay, but it's quite important to the story, so I will just give you a very quick demonstration. <laughs> All you need to do is you just stand with your feet sort of shoulder width apart, like so. Okay, and I'll, sh- I'll show you at the side so you can get a better view. There we go. And you, you crouch down into this sort of position here, so your bum sticking out. Don't be taking this all in. <laughs> and then you just move your bum up and down like that, and that's twerking. <laughs> it's, do you hear the nervous laughter of the parents in the room? And the video is it's gross. It, it, it's not even twerking. It's this humping action after this drag queen like hikes his dress up, and it's disgusting. Uh, and there are even more sexually suggestive performances. And and you know why? Just to just to show how, show how woke we are and stick it to these bigots. Um. Yeah, like we wouldn't care. You know, like mostly. It, it, uh, and then, of course, there was a story. Uh, I I broke this story actually of of this drag queen Desmond is amazing. Who was? Um, it's all part of this this motion they have to weaponize children, and they use children. Desmond was one of those the the the, the drag kid thing. I think there's a TV show on Netflix that's like a drag kid thing. It's disgusting. It's hypersexualizing children. There was the one Desmond who was. Dancing for dollar bills in a gay bar in Brooklyn late at night where cell phones weren't allowed 
And a bar that has, uh, I wouldn't even say, the, the uh, what's called a dark room, and I won't even tell you what that is, but it's not where you develop photographs. And you see that with Greta, and you saw that with the Parkland kids. Uh, you see it with climate change, with, with uh, a, you remember a group of kids confronting Dianne Feinstein about climate change. Why does the left weaponize children? I mean, if you have to weaponize children, you know you are, you're in a losing fight. Uh, and it's also completely immoral. I mean, I don't even like saying these kids' names. It makes me feel gross. Well, why am I talking about teenagers if I want to talk about your fake uh, climate change narratives? Uh, but I expect we'll see plenty more of this. Uh, I, I hope that the uh, LGBT kid thing is the first to go away. And it seems like it might be because people are really not comfortable. No matter how hard the media and big gay is trying to push children on this. But I can expect we'll see... Uh, plenty more children in the headlines. Uh, it, it seems to work for them. They, they become invincible. We are deeply concerned about uh, Secretary Pompeo's effort now to uh, potentially interfere with witnesses who, whose testimony is needed before our committee, many of whom are mentioned in the whistleblower complaint. Um, and we want to make it abundantly clear that any effort by the secretary, by the president, or anyone else to interfere with the Congress's ability to call before it relevant witnesses will be considered as evidence of obstruction of the lawful functions of Congress. And this President of the United States is stooping to a level that is beneath the dignity of the Constitution of the United States and our founders, since the chairman mentioned our founders. They put guardrails in the Constitution because they knew there might be someone who would overplay his or her power. They never thought that we would have a president who would kick those guardrails over and disregard the Constitution and say, uh, Article 2 says that I can do whatever I feel like. Did the president actually say that? I don't recall. That was, uh, that was uh, Adam Schiff, Shifty Schiff and Nancy Pelosi, the slurrer of the House, when they announced that they were going to be officially talking about impeachment because they've only been talking about it since before he even was inaugurated. Uh, that was, of course, from a few days ago. And now the White House has said that it will not cooperate with this impeachment inquiry. Why should they? And they were, they the White House is going to reject demands for documents and they're going to reject demands for testimony. At the direction of the State Department, the U.S. ambassador to the EU, which apparently is being summoned for uh, before the House, uh, Trump says he would love to send Gordon Sondland to testify, but not before what Trump said is a, quote, totally compromised kangaroo court. According to polls, which how how reliable are those going to be? Uh, one, a recent poll just said three in 10 Republicans support impeachment. This is coming from the week. Three in 10 Republicans? Mm, maybe? The Another poll said uh, close to, was it 58% of Americans support it? Uh, none of these can be trusted, obviously. 
what do the Democrats exactly think that they're doing? It is almost, do they not know anything that happened in 2016? Do they not understand that the election of Donald Trump was such a rebuke of this behavior of the, of the, what, uh, of the regime, the regime being Washington, both Democrats and Republicans, the swamp, the, that this sort of go, that this, this kind of behavior is going to get them anywhere. Um, but it does look, I didn't think that it would go through. I, my original impression was let them try it because, you know, in 2018, in the midterms, the Democrats, they really exhausted their voter rolls, didn't they? The Democrats were out in full force in 2018. The Republicans, not so much. And what happened? Modest, modest gains in the House. Nothing, nothing to write home about. No blue wave. No landslide. Yeah, they overtook the House, but by no means was it historically a big win. In fact, I think uh, opposition parties usually take more seats in midterm elections. So if they try to impeach Trump in 2020, what do they think is going to happen? They have no one. They're not running anyone that anyone's excited about at the moment. No one's excited about any of the candidates. There's no energy behind them on the Democrats. But the Republicans, the Trump voters, will be out in fuller force than they were in 2016 if they try to impeach this president. It almost guarantees a landslide. I don't really think they're going to be too worried about that. The Democrat Party, the nominees now, well, now we have, here we have uh, uh, Hillary Hillary, sitting down for an interview, if we could uh, roll clip nine, please. Um, So maybe there does need to be a rematch. I mean, obviously, I can beat him again, but. That was Hillary Clinton giving an interview, not from the Oval Office, saying that she could beat him again. So do we think Hillary is going to run again? (laughs) Oh, please. I know everyone wants it. Everyone wants it. A recent study uh, poll, uh, not a very professional one, said that she would come in third. We have now apparently three and four polls saying that Warren is ahead of Biden, which I, I think I began to see coming. Other than that, we've got you have in a party that's united on, by only one clear goal, and that is defeat Trump at any cost, and yet. They can't land a single blow at all. All they have is this impeachment nonsense. And they seem to think that the country, I don't know if, if the, you know, the Democrats are increasingly the party of the uh, old, detached, out of touch boomers. Do they think that they're still living in an era where they, where people like the establishment, where people are going to celebrate this? I suppose that the Trump deranged the Trump deranged among us will cling to false hope. He may be getting impeached. It's not going to remove him from office. I mean, in a way, it's kind of abusive how the Democrats keep doing this to the left, to the Trump deranged. It's emotional abuse. They get their hopes up constantly. The media, too, like with Russiagate and every scandal that comes along. This is it. We're, we're, we're getting rid of him. No, you're not. You're not getting rid of him. 
So waste as much money as you want. Waste everyone's time. It's all they have. All right. Uh, my next guest is contributing editor at The Spectator. You can also find you can find his uh, uh, most recent work that we're going to be discussing, one on Romney Republicanism in the, the inaugural print issue of The Spectator USA, which is out this month. You can also find his work on Spectator USA, the website, that's spectator.us. Full disclosure, I am also a columnist at Spectator USA. But I assure you that had nothing to do with selecting this uh, incredibly well-informed guest. Daniel, thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm delighted to be on. Thanks for having me. So we have been talking about impeachment, of course, what else is in the news. And you have a great column in Spectator USA uh, saying the, the headline is impeachment is regime suicide. And you make... You, you compare the the Nixon's non-impeachment and Clinton's impeachment with this impending impeachment of Trump, which you believe is going to happen. And I uh, I'm beginning to agree with you. But you frame it in how the parties have changed and culture has changed. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, the conventional wisdom about uh, Richard Nixon's impeachment is uh, almost, or, or his impending impeachment. Nixon resigned because uh, it was pretty much clear-cut that um, he was going to be uh, impeached by the House and most likely convicted and removed by the Senate. So he resigns preemptively, uh, and he does so, in fact, uh, in part simply because he did win such a big uh, landslide victory in 1972 when he won 49 states. Um, basically, there was still enough of a consensus in the country at that point that you could rally everyone around a leader. And it was clear that Richard Nixon had lost so much of the country's trust, uh, you know, first with Democrats, of course, first with independents, but eventually, too, with uh, Republicans, that there was really um, no way for him to stay in power, and that if he tried to do so, it would wind up hurting the Republicans not only in the 1974 midterms, but also being fatal to them, most likely, in the 1976 uh, presidential election. So it was a case where the national consensus had turned against Richard Nixon. It was a consensus he previously was leading, and now it was one that was uh, very much uh, flipped. And with uh, Bill Clinton in 1998, uh, there was no, uh, not, not as much of a national consensus. It was not something that brought together Republicans and Democrats. But Republicans thought that it would, and the fact that it didn't, the fact that uh, even a Republican Senate wouldn't convict and remove Bill Clinton for his very clear lying under oath, indicated that uh, there was still enough of a sense in the country that you had to impeach someone over something really clear-cut, really serious, not just uh, lying about sex, even if you did it under oath. So there were still certain norms that the country as a whole bought into, whereas today I think uh, there really is a much more of a sense that we are locked in a battle between left and right and that there is no common ground to appeal to in an impeachment proceeding. So, so if this impeachment, if he, is, if he does get impeached and it fails... What does that mean for what does that mean for for both parties? What does that mean for the upcoming election and for this country? What does that mean for this already divided country if they try to impeach him? Well, it just makes uh, impeachment look like uh, even more of a joke than it already seems to be based on the impeachment of Andrew Johnson in the 19th century and uh, Bill Clinton in 1998. Uh, The American public is already starting to get the sense that impeachment is not necessarily a serious proceeding where people who are really concerned about the rule of law try to check a, uh, you know, a president who's uh, crossed the line in some clearly criminal fashion. People are now starting to see, wait a minute, this really is a purely political mechanism. This is just another way of harassing a 
president you don't like, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, uh, whether it's, you know, in the, the, the 21st century or whether it's in the 19th century. A failure of impeachment here is going to show that this was really about simply embarrassing Republicans, trying to paint the uh, Senate Republicans into a corner in the forthcoming election and basically trying to tilt the 2020 election towards whoever the Democratic nominee is. But would it even tilt towards the Democrats? Because my sense is it would just get Republicans out in, in, into the polls. It would impassion their vote more. They would get, it would get them out maybe even more than in 2016. It's very high stakes for the Democrats. And in fact, I think the reason Nancy Pelosi has been so reluctant up until now to try uh, some sort of impeachment proceeding is precisely because she's afraid of that. She thinks that this will galvanize Republicans. It's going to be a catastrophe for Democrats. They're going to be disorganized. They're going to try to have an impeachment over, you know, very trivial or very uh, abstruse claims of lawbreaking, if there are claims of lawbreaking at all, right? I mean, they're, they're not pointing to any statute and saying that Donald Trump uh, violated it. Uh, what they're doing is simply casting aspersions on his character, claiming he did something nefarious with Ukraine and uh, trying to gin up a uh, basically a political lynching here. Right. And so, so I want to talk about now, uh, President Trump is having a rally in Minnesota tomorrow. And in your piece on Romney Republicanism in the print edition of Spectator, of Spectator USA, you discuss George W. Bush's electoral re-election electoral map versus Trump's. And you highlight this, the states such as uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, which did not go for Bush, but uh, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin certainly went for, for Trump. Um, there's a lot of talk about Minnesota. Trump seems to say he could flip Minnesota. That seems to be a place of a lot of interest. Do you think that's possible? Is there, what do you see happening with, with Minnesota? It's possible. You know, Minnesota has uh, idiosyncratic politics. Uh, the Democratic Party in Minnesota is actually the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, if I remember its uh, name correctly. It has this, uh, you know, long populist history. And it's entirely possible that you could find a lot of the same sorts of folks who flipped from being Obama voters to being Trump voters in 2016, uh, flipping to Trump uh, in 2020 as well. It's a long shot. It's, you know, a play to kind of expand the map. But I think it's uh, if you look at the similarities between uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin and some of the other states that uh, Trump won, which Republicans hadn't won in quite some time, you can see um, some pretty good grounds for cautious optimism here. In that same piece, you sort of make you make the point that the what you call Romney Republicanism has been missing as is missing the signs of Trump for years. And you and you talk about uh, Perot, Ross Perot's campaign, Pat Buchanan's campaign, Trump sort of being a kind of. Uh, uh, an apex of of uh, of all of that. Uh, what the Republicans sort of missed the signs along the way for for decades that they had an ideological problem. Do you think that where does the party go after Trump? Do you think that the, he's just a fluke, or is this going to permanently change the GOP? It's a permanent change, and uh, you know one of these points I was making was that this change has been underway even before uh, Trump emerged on the scene. And really what Trump has done is simply to make it so powerful and so obvious that the establishment can't ignore it anymore. Um, you, you know, you saw not only going back to the 1990s with people like uh, Pat Buchanan and Ross Perot, that there was some strong discontent with globalism, strong discontent with the, the drift towards open borders and with uh, some of the trade deals and some of the foreign interventions that we uh, got into in the 90s and 2000s. But also, you know, you can look at the campaigns of uh, Mike Huckabee, for example, in 2008, or Rick Santorum in 2012, 
And they made the case for Republicans reaching out more to blue-collar workers, reaching out to families who felt hard-pressed by both cultural liberalism and also by an economy that sometimes didn't seem to put families first. These, uh, you know, uh, forces and tendencies have been pressing on the Republicans, on the Republican establishment for decades now. And yet the Republican establishment has said, well, we're just going to go out and talk about job creators. We're just going to go out and talk about tax cuts. And we expect this is going to produce uh, results for us. And it really hasn't. That In fact, you saw that the uh, map that won for George W. Bush in 2004 kind of narrowly um, was a map that couldn't be replicated in 2008 or in 2012, in part because a state like Virginia, for example, had pretty much permanently flipped over to the Democrats because of the growth of uh, the federal uh, workforce here. Right. You make that point that, that Virginia is pretty much gone and mainly because of the, the D.C. suburbs. So it's a good point in, in the article. And uh, you also have this great line uh, in, in the piece that says uh, the autopsy that followed the GOP's drubbing in 2012 is a case in point. It prescribed that Republicans should talk and act more like Democrats on issues like immigration, which is what we see with the more conservative elites, as you point out, that they've actually moved. They've, the right wing populism has made them move to the left. Yeah, they've always hated the idea of, uh, you know, a sort of populist conservatism. Uh, they are, you know, sort of they come from the same cultural institutions as the leaders of the left do. They spend a lot of time not only as undergraduates, but in graduate school sort of imbibing, drinking from the same fountains of ideas, so to speak, as, as the progressives do. And so as a result, uh, they really are culturally much more similar to the uh, Democrats and the leftists that they supposedly oppose than they are to Americans who are, you know, working in factories or who are, you know, actually living uh, lives in the middle of the country. Absolutely. Um, there's, a, there's a great deal of alienation between uh, the Republican voting base and uh, the people who claim to speak for it uh, at the elite levels. Absolutely. Very well said, Daniel McCarthy from uh, contributing editor at The Spectator. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you for having me on. And we are back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. I, my name is Chadwick Moore. I'm not Buck Sexton. Filling in for the Buckster. Uh, could we play clip 10, please? I'd never been to China before, but I hate to say I'm a little disappointed in all of you. What I've seen, you, you seem to treat your people like dirt. You don't believe in any individual freedoms. I mean, you got Winnie the Pooh and Piglet in jail? Now, come on, China! You know, a country ain't nothing unless it's got decency and integrity. And I think I speak for Pooh and Piglet and all of Disney when I say you could use some integrity, China. Now, it just so happens that I own a integrity farm. And we're going to be rich. Fellas, I need to tell you something. I think I'm homosexual. And also, I'm addicted to cocaine. Oh, that's okay, Jimmy. Yeah, we can get you a liver transplant. Cut! Cut! Listen, guys, we uh, just got word back from the Chinese censors. They don't want us mentioning organ transplants. How come? Well, they've been accused of harvesting organs from the... Look, look it doesn't matter. They they just said no to the organ stuff. <laughs> Uh, that was a clip from the most recent episode of South Park. Uh, South Park, that episode just got South Park banned from China. So, the According to reports, because of that episode, China has scrubbed virtually every South Park clip from its internet. It's uh, scrubbed every episode. It's scrubbed every online discussion about the show. 
and all even fan pages, etc., from their social media networks because of that recent episode of South Park that was making fun of China. China, as the president says. Uh, it's a really funny episode, and uh, it's it it uh, makes fun of. Um, well, it actually, to be honest, it's an, it's, it's a commentary. So there's two storylines that happen, and one of the characters, Stan's dad, goes there to sell marijuana because he's a weed grower, a legal weed grower, and he gets thrown into a Chinese labor camp. And in there, he meets um, Pooh and Piglet, who are also in the camp. Uh, and this is actually a true story. I looked it up, that Pooh and Piglet were banned from China because people were posting side-by-side pictures of President Xi and Pooh, saying that they look alike, a Pooh bear. And because people are posting these side-by-side photos, Pooh has been banned from China. So it's a, it's a funny episode, but it's, and it's the, other, the other running storyline is uh, that the character Stan is, is writing a, a, a movie. And, and as you heard in that clip, he's, the director is um, always oh, just a check with the Chinese. So... The real commentary, though, is about, and one of the characters says this in the show, that he says, we live in a time where the only movies American kids are allowed to see are those that are approved by China. It's mainly, it's mainly a commentary on, on entertainment. And, and throughout the episode, there's all these Disney characters popping up and, and Marvel, Marvel movie characters, superhero movie characters. And this, of course, comes after a... Houston Rockets executive tweeted something in support of the uh, the Hong Kong protesters, the pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. And just that single tweet among hundreds of NBA executives, one tweet, sparked a huge backlash in the Chinese government with Beijing going into overdrive and saying they would stop airing Rockets games and local sponsors pulled their funds from the team. So that's China. And I was thinking, you don't really see, I watched the South Park episode last night and um, you can watch it for free online. And um, it occurred to me that I had never, I don't think I've seen a political parody of China. You see parodies of maybe Chinese culture, but of, uh, like that and there must clearly be a reason why so matt stone and trey parker who are the the uh, creators of south park and who are republicans in hollywood it's a couple maybe a year or two ago they were at some hollywood event and they received an award and they got on stage and said you know we're republicans right and and everyone laughed and they said no no we're serious (laughs) and then the room got (laughs) a little still But so they released a statement to the Chinese government and their statement says, quote, like the NBA, we welcome the Chinese censors into our homes and into our hearts. We, too, love money more than freedom and democracy. She doesn't look like Winnie the Pooh at all. Tune into our 300th episode this Wednesday at 10. Long live the great Communist Party of China. (laughs) Good for them. Good for them. I saw... Jack Posobiec on Twitter, he's a uh, kind of he's a he's a Trump guy. He's kind of a uh, I think I believe he works for One America News. 
and he had said, South Park is standing up to China. Dave Chappelle is standing up to the woke left. And the most anti-woke movie of the last 10 years was made by the director of Old School and Hangover. Who knew comics from the 2000s would save America? He's kind of right. It's that backlash. It was the 2000s, that last generation before the PC took over. Well, before Obama. Before Obama breathed life into cultural Marxism and made it mainstream when he freed it from the universities. And that last director that Posobiec was referring to uh, is the director of, of Joker. The director of Joker, uh, Todd, his last name just escapes me. Um, he used to do comedy movies. He used to do Old School and The Hangover. And in fact, he gave an interview to Vandy Fair about, Todd Phillips is his name, I'm sorry, Todd Phillips, about uh, his switch to this extremely dark movie. And uh, he said in Vanity Fair, go try to be funny nowadays with this woke culture. And uh, there's lots of expletives in here, but he said, essentially, he's not going to try to do it anymore. It's too difficult. But of course, there are plenty of people who uh, aren't concerned with censorship around the globe or particularly here in the United States. Of course, the mainstream media. Great article, great article in the New York Times last week, earlier this week, actually, I believe it was, by Andrew Morantz. Clearly, I'm being sarcastic. The headline was, was the headline was how free speech is bad for us, how free speech is killing us. Free speech is killing us. And in this article... The New York Times, this op-ed piece, he is calling for, this is great. I've never heard this. I've never heard them be this bold before. It's, it's actually wonderful. I love how the, their hysteria, uh, we're seeing exactly who they are. Trump shows us exactly who they are. And, uh, and Trump's followers and um, the people who push back against them. So... So the New York Times here is calling for Congress to, uh, for example, you know, just saying they're just throwing it out there because we have this we have this real problem with hate speech. We have this real problem with mean people on the internet, and it's leading to mass killings and it's destroying lives. What they really mean when they bring all this up is it's leading to populism. It led to past tense. It led to populism. It led to the man who was never supposed to win, winning the presidency. But instead they'll say, um, no, it's, it's violence. It's, it, it's encouraging my white supremacy and my violence. So the New York Times has, has, you know, for example, here's how they could fix it. Perhaps there should be a national campaign to promote news literacy. You know, it could invest. This is straight from the article. It could invest heavily in uh, library programming. It could build a robust public media in the mold of the BBC, because we all know how fair the BBC is to the anti-EU, anti-globalist among them, the people who are forced by virtual gunpoint to fund it. Uh, and the article says, you know, we could rethink Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, the rule that essentially allows Facebook and YouTube to get away with 
parentheses glorification of murder. It allows them to get away with murder. The article goes on to say that we could fund, we the taxpayers, what we should do is fund a rival to compete with Facebook or Google. Quote, the way the Postal Service competes with FedEx and UPS. <laughs> because when you have a choice, how are you going to send your package? Uh, <laughs> this is, this is sometimes, I don't know if the New York Times is parody anymore. I don't know. Um, but it goes on to, to say that uh, he's, he interviews so, uh, an expert on, on mean words in this article. And um, the expert on mean mean words compares harmful speech to carbon pollution. And he says that people are allowed to drive cars, but the government can regulate greenhouse emissions. The private sector can transition to renewable energy sources, don't you know? Um, Civic groups can provide... Uh, can promote public transportation and cities can build seawalls to prepare for rising ocean levels. This is all straight from the article. Um, We could choose to reduce all of that to a simple dictate. Everyone should be allowed to drive a car and that's that, but doing so wouldn't stop the waters from rising around us. So they're openly calling for government, Facebook, government, Google, and you know, We just want certain words banned, not everything. That's never a slippery slope, is it? Silicon Valley is one place also like the media. Well, they're they're the biggest uh, enforcers of speech, of censorship in, in this country. Perfectly happy to, you know, these are the companies that are the most woke around us. These are the most, we're told these are the most woke people in America. Silicon Valley executives, Google, Facebook, Twitter, they love diversity. They love, they're, to, they're extremely tolerant. They love diversity. And yet they are also the first companies to capitulate to, to countries that oppress extremely vulnerable groups, to countries that oppress homosexuals, to countries that suppress the free speech of, of those fighting for democracy. I would be curious, I haven't seen this yet, but I would be curious to see what Google results, search results are in China for the Hong Kong protests versus the ones, versus what you get in the United States. Someone someone who's in China, if you happen to listen to this, you should pull that up and, and send it along and we can compare. Because we all know that, that Chinese Google is is just, does, it goes however the government, the, Google handed the keys over to the Chinese government, just run it how they need to. And uh, we see Google, last year, Google banned over 70 gay-themed apps from the its Play Store in Indonesia. Indonesia, which is, of course, a, a Muslim government. And very, Indonesia is often touted as the, the you know, the example of, of modern, moderate Islam. And... They don't really say that anymore because they started whipping gays in the street or public public whipping canings and whippings of gays. They take transgenders and they shave their heads and dress them up in male clothing, uh, 
uh, trans women, dress them up in male, men clo- male's clothing and parade them around town. And the government of Indonesia also said, uh, hey, Google, no, we don't no gay dating apps, no gay news sources, none of that here. And Google said, no problem. Of course, of course, anything. Because woke doesn't sell in those countries. And as the point that, that South Park was making, um, they just love money. It, it, Hollywood and Silicon Valley, they're one and the same. They're all fake. And they're the first ones to say that you're hateful and you're a bigot. They're all hypocrites. There was an instance where a few months ago, Michelle Malkin, who's a sort of outspoken conservative uh, personality, got a notification from Twitter saying that her something she posted, just letting her know that something she posted violated the blasphemy laws of Pakistan. She's uh, an American citizen. She is, as far as I know, never been to Pakistan. But Twitter's just letting her know that that's not allowed in Pakistan if she happened to be there or ever were going to travel there. Just firing a warning shot at her. If Twitter and Facebook and Google and all of these companies so readily will bow down to the speech restrictions and uh, human civil rights (laughs) violations of other countries, of developing countries, of China, of Islamic countries, why is it so hard to expect that they must respect our speech laws, of which there are none? with extremely few examples. Why shouldn't we expect that if you want to do business in the United States, you have to respect our laws in the same way in which you, there's no such thing as hate speech. You can't ban people willy-nilly. I just got a 30-day ban on Facebook yesterday for sharing a column I wrote for Spectator USA that was headlined, Rednecks are the least racist people in America. Uh, I got a 30-day ban on Facebook for that, (laughs) for saying that rednecks aren't racist, which is apparently hateful. So why can't we demand that these companies, you know, Hollywood can keep churning out crap, whatever. We'll always have some alternatives, but, but the stakes are a little bigger with Silicon Valley. Why can't we just start demanding that they have to respect our, our rules on speech, the way that they respect the rules on speech in these other insanely progressive uh, regressive nations, and we know why. It's because they're not only about business, but they are about the Democrat Party, and they're about helping the Democrat Party. And they're in bed with the Democrat Party as much as the media is. And I probably think Facebook is probably the worst among them. And I don't think we're going to see that change at all. There's a lot of signaling that it may, but I doubt it. But all right, this has been... The Buck Sexton Show, and I have been your your stand-in host, Chadwick Moore. You can find my columns weekly at Spectator USA. That's spectator.us. You can also find me on Twitter. That's Chadwick underscore Moore, M-O-O-R-E. That's at Chadwick underscore Moore. You can find me on Tucker Carlson tonight pretty regularly. I'm a regular guest on that show, and it has been a pleasure and hope to join you guys all again soon.